And initially we had very big ideas. I think our first proposal was like 500 pages. Ouch. And we could have made this so much bigger. <laughs> uh, we appreciate you making it smaller <laughs> and manageable. And sometimes it was like heart rendering to have to pull something or have to choose between one quote or another quote. Yeah, some some really great things ended up on the cutting room floor. But we're But that's volume we're, two, right? Yeah, we're Absolutely. preparing ourselves for a volume two. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, I am Laura Harris-Hells, your host for this episode of the LDS Perspectives Podcast. Today, I am here with Janice Johnson and Jenny Reeder, authors of The Witness of Women, Firsthand Experiences and Testimonies from the Restoration, and we'll be talking about incorporating 19th century women's stories into our gospel learning and teaching. Hello, Janice. Hi. And hello, Jenny. Hello. Janice is a native of the California Bay Area and loves history, design, art, good food, and traveling. She has a master's degree in history from BYU and in theology from Vanderbilt's Divinity School. She also has a PhD from the University of Leicester in England. Good job. She has worked at the LDS Church History Department and is currently a visiting professor of religion at BYU-Idaho. She's the author or editor of several published works on women's history. Jenny Reeder is a 19th century women's history specialist at the LDS Church History Department. She has a PhD in American history from George Mason University with an emphasis in women's history, religious history, memory, and material culture. Her dissertation, Doing Something Extraordinary, Mormon Women and the Creation of a Usable Past, explores the material culture used to commemorate the first 50 years of Release Society and is pending publication. She serves on the executive committee of the Mormon Women's History Initiative team. You guys have done a lot of schooling. Yeah, we sure have. It seems a little like bit. I've been in school forever, but it's, it's nice to, to be out. And yet I feel like I still am in school just because I come home and keep working on my projects and reading and writing. It, it never ends. I've never really left school. My first thought when I looked at this book and started thumbing through it was, wow, this is an immense amount of research that went into this book. My first question is, where did this idea come from for this book? Several years ago, I was thinking, while I was working on my PhD, actually, I was in England, and I for a long time have thought about how much more we need to hear women's voices. And initially, the idea was to go along with Doctrine and Covenants, Church History, Gospel Doctrine Study, and try and just provide a resource that would enable people to really easily insert women's voices. Because, And I think that that is the first step. There is a lot of work that's been done on Mormon women's history. Most of it has come in biographical form, which is a lovely way to learn about women and to learn about their life experiences. But it is a very difficult way to easily incorporate those women's voices into lessons. 
And when our manuals don't always provide a lot of women's voices, we wanted to provide a resource that would be imminently accessible and would be very easy to just insert women's voices in and begin that process of helping us become much more familiar with Mormon women. We have so many examples of miraculous Mormon women, of strong Mormon women, and intelligent and thoughtful Mormon women, and I wanted to make this as easily accessible as possible. And so I recruited Jenny, and we began this project. We proposed it to Deseret Book, and it did not go particularly well initially, but a little bit later, we heard that they were really interested in it again, and we made a second proposal, and this time they accepted it. And we're really excited about being able to bring this together. And our format, we have tried to make this just easy for people to get to know a little bit about women, but also to expand the voices of these women. I think in the years of doing research on Mormon women's history, I found little bits and pieces of stories and women that have really stood out to me, but it's been years that I've been doing it, and I've looked at a bunch of different sources, and it's really hard to have to do that kind of in-depth research for a gospel doctrine lesson when you don't have time, obviously, for that. And so as Janice said, we really wanted to bring these pieces together in a place where it was very accessible. We appreciate the effort that Deseret Book has made with the Women of Faith volumes, which are fantastic and fantastic set up in a biographical structure. But again, you might read a whole book or read a whole chapter and get maybe one tidbit that hopefully you would remember it by the time you were teaching a lesson to which it might apply. And so we have tried to do that work for you to make this imminently accessible. So you're teaching a lesson on Revelation or on Zion, and you can turn to a chapter and have all of these women's voices that can contribute to the discussion and these examples that we can learn from. Each year being extremely humble, because being a history hobbyist, the first thing I did was flip to the back of the book where the citations are. It's not just a matter of having time. <laughs> it's a matter of knowing where to look. And once you know where to look, being able to even read the script, some of these things were transcribed, but I'm assuming not all of these documents were transcribed. No, no, no. We went, for the most part, we went to women's collections or letters or journals or reminiscences where they had written them out. And so we had to go there. But we also chose to look at publications that were made in the 19th century while these women were alive and they could give their actual words in response to questions or to the creation of biographies for them. Um, and those books aren't necessarily accessible now, but their words are so powerful. So we, we draw from Edward Tolage's Women of Mormondom, which was printed in 18... 70, I think. Yes. And then Augusta Joyce Crosheran put together the Representative Women of Deseret, which was 1884. The Women's Exponent was this fabulous newspaper that ran from 1872 to 1914. And one of the purposes of the Women's Exponent was for women to share their life stories and to share their theological thoughts. And that was a, also an excellent place. And again, it's spread out over a lot of years and a lot of issues, and it's digitized, which is great, but it's hard just to find the one little tidbit of a story or a quote that you could use in a lesson. 
Did you read every single issue of the woman's exponent looking for these tidbits? No. <laughs> You're no, honest, I, at least. I am honest, I, but I wanted to. We had a few ways that we could do searches, or we knew of a few things that already were there. But sometimes we would just do a word search in a PDF file of the women's exponent. and Which it, sometimes works well, sometimes doesn't. But I think as we sometimes we would find one thing and think, okay, this is the vocabulary. These are the kinds of words that they use. And that made it easier to search search things. But you've got, with the women's exponent particularly, and that was the major source that we had digitized. Most of the manuscripts we had to read, hopefully we were aware of them. But the women's exponent, the searching over 50 some odd years of publications, we became attuned to the kind of words to search for and to try and find different women. Sometimes Some of them were written with pseudonyms. So then we would have to try and hunt down. We may f have found this miraculous quote. And there were a few that we uh, couldn't f figure out who they were. With this effort to put together who these women were and what they were sharing. And so we're able to find some voices that are going to be unfamiliar to the saints, that people ha haven't heard of. Voices from Eliza R. Snow or Emmeline Wells, that names that hopefully, well, maybe people know, Lucy Max Smith, but a whole host of women that they've never heard of who have these miraculous life stories. That reminds me of a lecture I heard a couple years ago. It was at a Women's History Initiative celebration, actually for Claudia Bushman's birthday, but in reality, it was for her body of work. One of the presenters was talking about a study she had done, and she'd taken a survey which 19th century women were most recognizable to the general saints. And the same two, three, four women kept coming up. And it seems like we tend to lump all 19th century women together. In this book, over 100 women are profiled. Some, as you would say, like Eliza Arsenault, are very familiar to the saints. Some are kind of familiar to people, and some are totally unknown. I had never heard of them. And probably some were even new to you. Absolutely. I think part of the excitement in finding these unknown women was finding out about their lives. And knowing just a little bit about their biographies really added a punch to what they were saying and why it meant so much. Yeah. One example I was thinking of, Elizabeth Jones Lewis. She is a convert. She marries Dan Jones, who is very well known in, in Mormon history for all of his efforts. She marries him. She immigrates from Wales, and she is called the Welsh Queen because she has a valuable estate, which she sells, and she is able to help dozens of Welsh saints gather first to the United States and then to Utah. And so she is someone in the 19th century that all the Welsh saints knew who this woman was. And none of us, even as women's historians, we had never heard of her. And this miraculous story of her consecrating everything she's got to help her brothers and sisters and help them gather with the saints in Utah. I love this quote from your book. It's, no two of these women lived the same experience. Why do you think this is important for readers to keep in mind? And how do you think this helps 
women as they're preparing lessons, or we hope men too as they're preparing lessons to say, okay, these were 19th century women. I may not have 19th century ancestors, but what they learned is still applicable to me today. I think that one of the strengths of the book is that it can be used as a lesson in learning to be empathetic and learning the skill of empathy. And part of that is recognizing the differences in all of our varied experiences. We sometimes classify people into married and single or with children or without children or young or old, you know, these bifurcated categories that just make it easier for us. But even within these categories or across categories, we all have a different experience. And I believe that part of discipleship is recognizing all of the different kinds of experiences that people go through and trying to serve people and understand people and take care of people. And I think that we can only really do that well when we recognize all of the many varieties that are out there. And we make all sorts of assumptions about these faithful pioneer women, you know, and we have these images of women pushing handcarts and wearing long dresses, and that kind of all their differences are subsumed into this one image. Yet they have such different experiences, some of which are really surprising to us today, that we would not anticipate that we would have doctors, or we would not anticipate that we would have British aristocrats, or a woman, Desideria um, Quintara de Yanez from Mexico, who has a vision She is a visionary woman who has a vision of these missionaries producing this pamphlet. And they are printing in Spanish for the first time the voice of warning, Parley P. Pratt's pamphlet. And she sends her son to go find these missionaries. I mean, that is a miraculous gift of the spirit that she has had. And she never left her small village in Mexico. Yet that faith and that experience, that numinous experience that she has had with the Spirit and with this gift of the Spirit to have this vision changed their whole lives. And that is a miraculous example to us. The other thing that I think is so valuable in this book is we show that these different women approach the gospel and the church and Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon in such different ways. There's not one right way. Zina Young was a young schoolgirl when she saw the Book of Mormon, and it was sitting on the windowsill in her father's home. And she saw it, and she knew immediately. She said, I knew that this was truth, truth, truth. But for Eliza R. Snow, it took her three years to read and to study and to watch the activities of the Mormons and to make sure this wasn't what she called a flash in the pan. She had to really give it time and effort to understand that this was what she wanted. And I think that just shows that there's not one way to approach or even live the gospel or even gain a testimony. I think there's a variety of ways, and I think each of those ways needs to be appreciated and valued and understood and respected. Both those stories that you just shared stood out to me, and I learned lessons that answered questions that I've been having. For example, how women approached the way they accepted the gospel differently. Often the early pioneers are accused of being zealots. And I think it shows that they had zeal, but they didn't necessarily act irrationally or without deep contemplation. They didn't blindly accept this as truth. No, and I love that process that so many of them write about. 
of really struggling and thinking through it and studying and talking and trying to figure it out. And it's such an individual process. And many of these women are, they're millennialists. They think the second coming is right at their doorstep and they are worried about false prophets. And so you see them carefully trying to figure out and be sure that this is the right step. And for some of them, that conviction comes very early. For others, it is a consistent process. We start out with a quote from uh, Laura Farnsworth Owen, and she is definitely not your classic 19th century woman. But she converts to the gospel, and her local minister says that she is literally crazy. And she writes this. She has had these accusations against her. And she writes this 19th century tract. And today, for us, some of it, parts of it are a little laborious. She is going through this trail of scriptures and kind of proof texting as to, to the truthfulness of the restored gospel. But we see in this, this process, this is not something that, this is not a decision that she made quickly. She has taken time with this, and this is laborious, and she takes this time to write out her justification. And she says, my happy soul is witness to the truth I've found. If this be delusion, then happy delusion. But she demonstrates to us that time that she has taken. She has earned that testimony. She is confident in it. It wasn't just that initial thought, though that was certainly important and that initial feeling, but she has built on that and she has built a strong testimony that will make it through two husbands leaving her and all sorts of accusations. And she is, remains strong. Before we get into some of the really memorable stories you have in this book, I want to ask you a couple more questions about methodology. I noticed that the stories are arranged topically. So when you were doing your research, did you look for the stories or the topic first? I think we started with the topics and... It was a very, um, what's the word? Organic. Organic <laughs> process, yes. We started out with a list of topics, and then we would find stories and, and accounts and other things, and sometimes they would fit really nicely in one place, but sometimes they would fit nicely in other places, and so sometimes we would break those up and put them in different places, or sometimes we would find a really great account and try to figure out, we've got to use this. Where is it going to fit? So we had our initial list of topics. But then within those topics, we have sort of subtopics, and those didn't come until we had a good, a good list of women's experiences within that topic. And then that came organically as well. We could see how we could sort of subdivide them into smaller pieces. And initially, we had very big ideas. I think our first proposal was like 500 pages. Ouch. And we could have made this so much bigger. <laughs> uh, we appreciate you making it smaller <laughs> and manageable. And sometimes it was like heart rendering to have to pull something or have to choose between one quote or another quote. Yeah, some really great things ended up on the cutting room floor. But we're. But that's volume we're, two, right? Yeah, we're Absolutely. preparing ourselves for a volume two. So. So you've also broken it up. So you have paraphrases and you have quotes, which I think is really careful scholarship. Also, some are secondhand accounts. Most are very late. Let's explain why most of them probably are very late. So I think that's part of the challenge of doing women, women's history. For example, we have an account of Mary Whitmer, and she was privileged to see the, the plates. But she never wrote about that experience. 
And her grandson wrote about it and talked about how she would tell them the story of it. So that's a secondhand experience of something that was never recorded in the first hand. And we felt like some of these things were so valuable and so important that we needed to include them in the form that we had them. Yeah. Another example, Heber J. Grant talked about, so as a child, he received a blessing in tongues from Zina Huntington Young and Eliza R. Snow. And then his mother would consistently remind him of this blessing. And then we have an additional blessing from his wife. And so he tells this story. It's a miraculous story, but we don't actually have it from any of the women specifically involved in it. And so we think that this is an important moment of women blessing a future leader of the church and that being a compelling moment in his childhood that we think is really important and needs to be included, even though we didn't have it in their words. So there are a few instances where we have used the words of men or the a secondhand account because we felt that these are important events and important experiences that we really want to include, even though we don't have the perfect source. And also because they're, they're not recorded anywhere else. Yeah. There's no other record of them. And that's part of both the frustration and the excitement of doing 19th century women's history is that you never know what still exists, what shreds of material you'll be able to find or how you'll be able to pull it together. And we have always prioritized women's voices and privileged women's voices. We want to hear how they talk about this experience. But we have, in a few instances, gone with another source because we don't have it from that, the woman speaking about it herself. I noticed that in addition to the topics that you chose to use as chapter headings, there were some themes that pervaded the book. And some of these themes were similar to ones that we experience in the 21st century, but some were very different. So one of those themes that I found was that there was a lot of talk about visions and speaking in tongues. And these are things we don't necessarily do today, or if we do have visions, we don't share them in a public manner. Can you tell me a little bit about the stories you found and what experiences you think these women had with the speaking in tongues and how that affected their religiosity? I think that we have a chapter that is on gifts of the Spirit, but I think that some of these ideas pervade other chapters, because certainly some of the way that they experience religion is something that might be a little bit foreign to us today. I believe that as a missionary, I served in Argentina and that I was given the gift of speaking in tongues. But that was a known language, and it was communicating with people who were there who spoke this language that I did not natively speak. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit are something that change considerably over time. In Scripture, Paul talks about them. In 2 Corinthians, Moroni talks about them. Sections 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants talk about gifts of the Spirit, and they all tweak their lists a little bit. There's this great talk by Marvin J. Ashton, and he talks about the least conspicuous gifts of the Spirit. He makes his own list of gifts of the Spirit. And I think that one of those things, sometimes we look at this and say, well, we don't speak in an unknown tongue anymore, or we don't talk about visions in that same way anymore. We can 
talk about this in terms of a narrative of loss. We've lost that. Gifts of the Spirit are one of those things that change on our our context and our level of expectation. And if we today read that chapter on gifts of the Spirit and think, we've got none of that, we're missing everything that we have. And just because things are manifest to us in a different way doesn't mean that we don't experience gifts of the Spirit. The other thing that I like about the way this book reacts to that is that they're, again, they're shown in so many different ways. And it, again, goes back to this whole idea of the individual woman and the individual experience and how different that is for everyone. I remember when I was Relief Society president, and I would send little cards in the mail. I'd think of someone and think, I'm going to send her a little card in the mail. And as I was writing the card, it was almost as if I were giving her a blessing. You know, I was telling her what I wanted for her and, and what I admired about her and what I loved about her. And that was my format of doing the same thing that these women were doing in a different way. But I realized that I, too, participate in that in my own way. Another thing I noticed was that the women that you portrayed seemed to accept trials as a way of life. And this could just be superficial me, but I expect to have no trials because I'm living righteous, right? (laughs) Yes. So when they come along, I'm like, gosh, golly darn, why is this happening to me? I am entitled to have a trial-free life. And then at the end of it, I say, well, I've learned something from this. Let's have peace now, no more trials. I did not see that in the testimonies and experiences of these women. They expected trials. They didn't expect them to go away. I think part of that was because of the time death was ever present. There was not a realistic expectation that every child you gave birth to would live to an adulthood because they simply didn't. A woman would have 10 children and end up having four, maybe five, lived to adulthood. Some were disowned by their families when they joined the church. They often went hungry. Even worse, they had to see their children and loved ones go hungry. They accepted it as a part of life. And that gave me strength and made me think, okay, you need to re-examine when you have these little pinprick trials how you react to them. That's also one thing that I love about this book because I think we see women that aren't perfect. They're not Patty Perfect or Molly Mormon. They have real stuff going on in their lives. And I think for us today, we, we see that we too have stuff going on in their lives. Drusilla Hendricks, her husband was shot in a skirmish in Missouri and was paralyzed, and she had to care for him and her family for the rest of her life. How many single mothers have that exact same experience? She has this amazing story of how she really was able to figure out ways to support her family, whether it was taking in laundry or making and selling food and beverages or other things. And that's the other thing that I love about this is these women are so resourceful. Another tragic story is Amanda Barnes-Smith when her son's hip is shot out at the Battle of Hans Mill. And she has to figure out what she's going to do to help him heal. And so she goes into a cornfield and she prays. And she has an expectation that she will receive revelation and understanding. And she is told very specifically what kind of leaves to gather, what kind of poultice to make, and how to care for him. And she does it with the things that she has. And I love that. I love that resourcefulness and that thrift and that confidence in being able to figure out how to make this work. 
and I think there's a rest of this story that you included. I think a lot of women know that part of the story. It may be even in a manual somewhere. It's been told over and over and over. There's a rest of the story that's also included, which moved me probably even more than that part of the story. I agree. I love that. because, And I think that that is a beautiful example, but it's also one that we've heard before. And some of these examples we have heard before, but we don't know, oh, a woman was said that, or we don't know kind of the larger context. And as that story continues, I think I'll leave it as a teaser. It's a glorious, it, it just is a very powerful story of people taking care of people. And sometimes answers to prayers coming from very unexpected places. I think that culturally, we very much have this theology of if we're righteous, then everything works, and we don't have to deal with hard things. That is not scriptural. It is not doctrinal. It is this kind of cultural misunderstanding that we often kind of perpetuate. And as we see these women, I see myself in them and see myself dealing with difficult things. I will probably not go through some of the exact same difficulties that they go through. But there have been times when I have been pushed and pulled and stretched and prodded and not sure that I could do anything more. I was in the BYU Special Collections and I was reading Jane Snyder Richards. And it was actually, it was a collection of different women's experiences, different experiences from Winter Quarters. And Winter Quarters is a desperate place. It is not cheery and rosy. It is a difficult experience, though some women were miraculously able to find bright and cheery things in this dreary, muddy existence. This just, they're pushing through the mud, literally, very literally. And Jane Snyder Richards writes about, she is, her husband is away on a mission And her daughter is sick, and she's talking about her daughter being sick. Her daughter gets a little bit better. She herself is bad. I think she has to shave her head because she is so sick. Her hair is falling out in clumps, and so she is wearing a bonnet, and her daughter dies. And she writes in her journal, I only lived because I could not die. And I just sat there like sobbing in the, the, the archives. And that just hung, that, that phrase, I only lived because I could not die, just hung with me for weeks, thinking about that, her desperate situation there and feeling entirely alone in the world. Brigham Young had come by and visited and said, oh, had I known how desperate your situation was, I never would have called your husband on a mission. I wouldn't have left you in this, this place. And there's no immediate resolution to this, but she makes it through and she continues to push through. And eventually she gets better and she is able to have more children. But this isn't something that is suddenly transformed into, yes, I made it through and it's all cheery and rosy. This is just her most difficult moment. One of our chapters is on Abrahamic sacrifices. And as I began that chapter, I the main focus was going to be polygamy and the difficulty that was polygamy. But as I started reading more and more accounts, I realized that that most difficult thing was polygamy for many of these women in the 19th century. But everybody had something that was different, their hardest thing. Jenny mentioned Drusilla Doris Hendricks, and she, as she's caring for her husband, who's been paralyzed, 
and the call comes for the Mormon battalion. And she has lost one son, and her 17-year-old son is just the age for the Mormon battalion. And for days, she knows that she should let her son go. But it is more, she feels like the Lord is asking her more than she can bear. And she talks about it in that language of, of an Abrahamic sacrifice. And she is laying everything on the altar when she lets her son go with the possibility. Now, we know they just walked a lot. You know, it was okay. But she didn't know that when she was asked to do that. For her, that was that straw that seemed like it was just going to the camel's back was going to give way. But she was faithful and she pled with the Lord and she argued with the Lord and she kind of walks through those arguments with us in her journal. But ultimately, she did what she felt the Lord was asking her. You mentioned polygamy being an Abrahamic test, and I think it was a great trial. A lot of airtime has been given to Helen Mar Kimball's experience with polygamy, but I think very few people realize she had many trials in her life that shook her to her core. She had a son who committed suicide as an adult. That was a tremendous trial for her. So these women are not just dealing with one thing. They're dealing, as you mentioned, with a whole bunch of things in life, just as we are. I found a common theme that we have today that you shared. The women took care of each other like we take care of each other now. One of the favorite stories that I ran across illustrates, I think, ultimate charity, We're often called upon to do compassionate service. We're called up. Will you bring a meal in? Sure, I can do that. Monday, okay, I'll do it. This was a similar case of a woman in need, but the response to me was so moving. It inspired me to react a little bit differently when I got those calls in the future. And I think it inspired me because I'm very familiar with stories of these two women but I wasn't familiar with this story. Jane Manning James wrote, Oh, how I suffered of cold and hunger, and keenest of all was to hear my little ones crying for bread, and I had none to give them. In the middle of her own extremity, Jane worked to help a sister in need. Amasa Lyman left his wife Eliza and children without any bread to go to California. Eliza's journal reads, Jane James, a colored woman, let me have about two pounds of flour, it being about half, she said. What stories of charity inspired you? So one of my favorite stories of immediate reaction to very serious needs happened in 1856 when the news of the Hancock Pioneer Companies reached Salt Lake City. They were actually having general conference And Brigham Young said that it was more important to disperse so that they could take the care of the needs of the saints coming across that were stuck in early winter storms in Wyoming. And so Lucy Meservy Smith and several other ladies immediately stood up and took off their petticoats to take to these freezing people. And she talked about later, she went back to Provo where she was Relief Society president, and she would go about collecting quilts and blankets and other supplies, and people just gave them 
to her without any thought, and she they were able to provide for these struggling saints. But she said, I'd never had more satisfaction in my life than doing something like this, just immediately taking care of people she knew were really suffering. And I love that story because it expands on a narrative that we know, trying to go and help the handcart companies who are lost in the snow. But more often than not, our narrative has revolved around three 18-year-olds who were supposedly carrying everybody across the river. Historian Chad Orton has helped us complicate and, and understand everyone who helped. But I see these concentric circles of people helping where they can. And I love Lucy's addition here because in the moment she said, okay, what can I do? And I can take off my petticoats. This is what I can do in church here at the conference in this moment. And then she continued with, well, we can get quilts. We can do whatever. And I think that when we look at some of these church history stories in a more complete whole, we see circles of people helping. It's not just the person right there who's doing this superhuman task, but you have real individuals who do what they can in the moment that they can. And that is the real miracle to me. It is not this superhuman thing that I, in my flawed state, can never duplicate, but real women who do what they can. They do what they can with what they have at that moment. They figure it out. If I were to ask you to to name your favorite story, would that be like picking a favorite child? <laughs> a <Yes>. little bit. <laughs> yes. Okay, I won't do that. Instead, I'll ask both of you, like we do at all my podcasts, in five sentences or less, what you hope the listeners can gain from your book and how they will use it. For me, I think that would be number one that women were involved in the restoration in very significant and powerful ways. And number two, that their words are incredibly diverse and different, and their experiences are incredibly diverse and different. And that diversity and difference is what brings such great strength to the Latter-day Saints. Number three, I would say that these women were real women. They had real challenges, and they learned how to deal with them resourcefully and with what they had, but they had true heartbreak. I've been thinking about Laura Clark Phelps. One of these well-known stories, so Parley P. Pratt and his autobiography, which is probably one of the more well-known books of Mormon history, he writes about his escape from the Missouri jail. They are in Columbia, Missouri. And he and Morris Phelps, Laura's husband in uh, King Follett, are in jail actually for longer than Joseph and the others are in Liberty Jail. And Laura is determined and she follows the spirit. Throughout American history, we see women who feel the compulsion from the spirit. They follow that spirit. They follow that direction that they receive from the spirit. And I love the way that we see women acting on the spirit. They don't just act and do necessarily what people expect. Their experiences are different, and they learn to rely on the Spirit. Laura Clark Phelps kept driving her wagon all the way to Columbia to visit for months. One time, her wagon turns over, and she had two children with her, and she says, I 
don't I think it hurt them, but a little, I think. And we see, but she's determined to go and to visit her husband. And she has a dream as to how they are going to escape. Parley has the same dream. And so she comes to Columbia. Orson Pratt is also there, wants to help. And they have this plan. And they move forward with the plan. And it is successful, but the plan hasn't included what's going to happen to Laura once they escape. And she is turned out into this mob that is gathering who are hearing that the Mormons had just escaped. But she relies on the spirit. And this little boy comes and helps her. They're not Mormon. She sings hymns with them. She shares her faith with them. She gives them a Book of Mormon, which she's just carrying with her. And she is able to to manage something that she never would have guessed would have happened. But this reliance and learning to rely on the spirit. We see it in these women before they recognize truth, before they convert to the gospel, and we see it all the way through, that learning to have that personal relationship and rely on the Spirit. I love that story, a woman organizing a jailbreak. (laughs) Thank you for your time, Janice and Jenny. This has been so fun. Thank you. We love talking about these women. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. He gave them to his mom and let her show them to people for 25 cents. And that's the going rate, because P.T. Barnum, who has a mummy, is allowing people to see it for 25 cents. So that's sort of the going rate at the time. And it's a way of providing her with an income. And she kept doing this after Joseph Smith died. Well, she's got these mummies and these papyri that she's exhibiting in the house. And she dies. And... Emma Smith, I think, is sick of having dead bodies laying around the house. So less than two weeks after Mother Smith dies, Emma sells the lot. Well, I think when we think of sarcophagi, we think of the beautiful engraved cases. But they didn't have the sarcophagi. They just had the mummies. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, policies, or practices.